2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, writing to Timothy, his disciple, says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, or the servant of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. So last week we began our series through the Bible, and um, as many of you guys know, we're doing a year... Oh, uh, student ministries can be dismissed, sorry about that. Um, But we're doing a year of biblical literacy as a church, and what that means is we're spending a whole year reading and discussing the Bible in order to know the Bible and be formed and shaped by the Bible, and last week, we discussed the problem of the Bible, which sounds funny, right? The, the, the problem with the Bible. But this is kind of what we were talking about last week. Most people on the street today have a problem with the Bible. And maybe not just most people on the street, but many Christians. It used to be that people in modern culture saw the Bible as prudish and outdated. Now, people see the Bible as morally reprehensible and dangerous to human rights and human flourishing. And many of us, we don't know how to answer that. Like, no, the the Bible isn't morally reprehensible. The Bible is good and right and true, and and the, the Bible has words of life in it, but we don't know how to answer those questions. We've never even read the text that people are referring to when they make these, you know, assertions. So as you read through the Bible... You yourself will come across these things as well, right? You realize that there are some really offensive things in the Bible. There are terrible people who do terrible things. And even even in the midst of that, sometimes you're like, and God seems to be inconsistent with his character. Like, what's happening in this story? The Bible is violent. Its teachings are often hard to receive, and not only that, but then there are the people that use the Bible to justify all sorts of things. I don't know if you guys saw this this week, but Robert Jeffries, did you guys read what he said? Justifying Trump's wall. He's a pastor. Justifying Trump's wall, this is what he says. Well, heaven is going to have a wall around it. People use the Bible to say all sorts of stuff and justify all sorts of things. And so what we were talking about last week is, man, can we just move on from the Bible? Like the Bible is that embarrassing family member, you know, that you don't like to admit is part of the family. It's that time in your life, you know, where you dressed a certain way and you were super embarrassed about, you know, you listened to Creed and, you know, Hoobastank and all this other stuff and you just don't want to talk about it. I get that. Right? So can we just move on? Can we just burn up those t-shirts and photos and move on? Why don't we drag the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age? And so we talked about this last week and tried to unpack the problem of the Bible a bit. And we came down to this, and, and we're not done talking about the problems of the Bible. This isn't it. But we came down to this last week. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. That's really what it comes down to us, for us. And we're not saying that we have the Bible figured out. We're not saying that we have all the problems of the Bible solved. But we're saying we believe Jesus. We trust Jesus. And so we're going to follow Jesus. And Jesus had a high view of Scripture, had a high view of the Bible. And so we're going to follow him that. And we're going to wrestle through these things together. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you'll be keen to believe and obey what the Bible says. Because that's what Jesus did. You're going to be careful with it. You're going to uh, not just... 
you know, we talked about last week, not just um, have insincere objections to the Bible, but have sincere, bring your sincere questions, bring your um, objections to the Bible, and talk those things out with the Lord with one another. Now, as I said, we aren't done talking about the Bible. So part of our problem with the Bible, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, and our culture's problem with the Bible, is I believe we aren't asking this basic question of the Bible, which is, what is the Bible for? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is the Bible for? So let me just, here's some misconceptions, I think, about what the Bible is for. First, there's the intellectual and educational aspect of the Bible. The Bible contains language, ancient language, history, peoples, culture, ideas, geography, poetry, and the list goes on, right? And you can spend a lifetime reading, studying, lecturing, and writing about the Bible. It's an intellectual approach to the Bible, right? It's a fascinating ancient text to be appreciated and poured over just like any other ancient text. We can use the Bible this way as simple facts about the way people lived, uh, just fascinating things like you would, you know, like stories about Atlantis, you know, like, oh, there are these ancient people called the Hittites, and here's, you know, where they lived, and here's the tools that they used, and isn't this fascinating, right? And we can do that with the Bible, just become kind of informational Bible nerds. Information to know and make us smarter, more educated. Is this what the Bible's for? There are many people, very smart people, who've made a career out of doing this. And the Bible to them is, is simply uh, an ancient text that we can study, we can appreciate. It's beautiful. The, the poetry itself is beautiful. Robert Alter, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, he is a, um, a professor at UC Berkeley. And I don't think Robert Alter is, he is Jewish, but I don't think he is a committed Jew. I don't think he's a religious Jew. And what he has done is just simply looked at the Bible from a, a point of view of narrative. The Bible is this incredible ancient story and one of the the most uh, well-told, well-preserved. It is artistically magnificent and beautiful in in the things that are described in the Bible, the way in which they're done. And he does a whole book on the poetry of the Bible, uh, the narrative of the Bible. He's got, I think, a trilogy of books that he does this on. And you can do that with the Bible. And when you do that with the Bible, you find beautiful things. Beautiful stories. You can find a beautiful poetry, but is this what the Bible is for? Here's another one. Timeless truth. Right? The more practical approach to the Bible. Maybe people have questions of how to live well, how to raise children, make life decisions, how to have a happy marriage, how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And who hasn't done this, right? Gone to the Bible with these questions. We see the Bible as timeless truth, ancient wisdom passed down to us. And so the Bible becomes a sort of self-help book that is interpreted to your liking and to your situation. And people do this all the time. I just mentioned Robert Jeffries, right? He interpreted a wall being around the New Jerusalem to support Trump building a wall, you know, the border of California, Arizona, Texas, and Mexico. You can do that with the Bible, I guess, right? Is that what the Bible's for? Listen, I, this week I heard Gavin Newsom's inaugural speech, and in it he was talking about building a stronger California. And Gavin said this, there's a story of two men. One built his house on shifting sand, and another one built his house upon the rock. He was that wise man. We are building California on a rock. And everybody's like... Yeah, you know, like, yes, what inspirational words, right? So, Governor Newsom takes this story from the Bible, rips it out of his context, does not reference Jesus once or his source of the parable. And now he turns the rock not into Jesus and his teaching, but into Gavin Newsom and the left's vision for California, right? So he's doing what so many of us do with the Bible. We take a verse, take it out of context, and we say, this is what I take this to mean. 
this part means this, and this is how I apply it to my life and my situation. And the question again is, is the Bible ours to interpret and to take whatever we want it to mean? Is this what the Bible is for? Just like, oh, I'll take that and I'll just plug and play it into my worldview. I'll just plug and play it into my agenda, plug and play into my vision. Is this what the Bible is for? Another thing we do with the Bible is we use it for spiritual inspiration, right? Um, it's that shot of adrenaline to pick us up when we're down. You know, um, what's the, um, I can't think, never mind, I can't think of it. The, the British quote during the war, um, keep strong and carry on, or something like that, right? It's like one of those things, you know, we... Uh, an inspirational quote, you know, we're down, and so we turn to the Psalms or Proverbs for some inspirational word that we can pl- apply to our need or experience. So, question, is the Bible to be used like a book of inspirational quotes or a Hallmark card? Is the Bible for Etsy prints and Pinterest boards? Is that what the Bible's for? And if you go to, like, you know, does Hallmark even exist anymore? Does it? Yes? Some are saying yes? Okay. So, like, if you go to Hallmark, I mean, that seems the way that, like, bookstores and card shops, if that's even a thing outside of Hallmark, that's the way they think about it. The Bible is just this inspirational, filled with inspirational words for our lives that can pick us up when we're down. And, you know, you're going out for a job interview, and you don't know if you're going to get it. Well, here, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, what beautiful words. Who's the Lord? Right? They don't know who this is talking about. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's just like, I take the Lord to mean this. And I think that his shepherding is like this. He gives me whatever I want and whatever I need. Thank you, universe. You know, I mean, that's like what people do with the Bible. Another thing we do with the Bible is a spiritual guide and answer book, right? We go to the Bible, it's the magic eight ball, looking for answers to life, big questions and answers. And Christians do this all the time. Can I sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend and still be a Christian? Can I smoke weed and still be a Christian? Can I be gay and still be a Christian? So people in the culture do this. The sad thing is the church does this because we're not asking this fundamental question, what is the Bible for? Now, the Bible does answer many of these things. And the Bible can be used and should be used, I think, in moments for inspiration. Timeless truth. The Bible can help you have a better marriage. It can do all of those things. But again, is this what the Bible is for? I recommended this book last week, and I will do it again and again and again and again until all of you read it. Um, but a book by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book. And he calls it, this book is a conversation in the art of spiritual reading. Here's what he says. What is surprising today is how many people treat the Bible as a collection of sibling oracles, verses or phrases without context or connections. This is nothing less than astonishing. The scriptures are the revelation of a personal, relational, incarnational God to actual communities of men and women with names in history. The witnesses to the revelation are real writers who do their writing and witnessing in the full light of day with the confirmation of their worshiping communities. So what he's saying is they're not in isolation. They're not just alone interpreting and writing these things. He says everything is out in the open. Now, the practice of dividing the Bible into numbered chapters and verses has abetted the sibling complex. It gives the impression that the Bible is a collection of thousands of self-contained sentences and phrases that can be picked out or combined arbitrarily in order to discern our fortunes or fates. But the Bible verses are not fortune cookies to be broken open at random, and the Bible is not an astrological chart to be impersonally manipulated for amusement or profit. Dang. So again, can the Bible answer these questions? Does the Bible answer these questions? The answer is yes, it does. But 
this is not actually the purpose of the Bible. The Bible has a specific purpose. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about that. What is the reason for the Bible? And I think in order, the first reason for the Bible is to know God. Again, from Eugene Peterson, he says, this is a text that reveals the sovereign God in being in action. We turn to Genesis 1. And these are the words we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This text from page 1, verse 1, reveals the sovereign God in being in action. It doesn't flatter us, he says. It doesn't seek to please us. We enter this text to meet God as he reveals himself, not to look for truth or history or morals that we can use for ourselves. What he, God, insisted on supremely was that we do not read the Bible in order to find out how to get God into our lives, get him to participate in our lives. That's getting it backwards. So the Bible is about God, the God of creation, the God of redemption. And scripture has been written down and recorded that we may know God. And and the Bible, I mean, even think about this. The Bible doesn't do this by giving us facts or bullet points about God. It's not a doctrinal thesis. But we open up the pages of Genesis and what do we find? We find a story that is already just like just is already going and we're being invited into. It doesn't answer all the questions we want to know. Who made God? How long did God live and exist before he created the heavens and the earth? What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? What does God look like? Right? All the questions we want to know and you know, all the questions you would have for somebody if you sat down and had a cup of coffee with him. The Bible doesn't do that. It just begins by telling us this story, and it's inviting us into the story. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, I love this, he said, I had always felt life first as a story and thought, well, if there is a story, then there must be a storyteller. And this is what the Bible does, right? It begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or if you will, once upon a time. A long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people get the Bible wrong because they think Genesis is a scientific text about cosmology. It's not. It's a story. It's a story about God. The creating God who gives identity and purpose to his creation. It's a story about the redeeming God who enters into covenant relationship with his creation. It's about the God who rescues. It's about the God who redeems and ultimately restores humanity to its original intent at cost of his own life. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. Have you ever thought about or looked at like what the first writings of the Bible were? Like when's the first time God tells somebody to write the Bible? Does anybody know? Was God like, hey, angels, take note, in the beginning? I'm just going to spitball here. You know, pull out your ink and pen or whatever. (laughs) It's funny because we read all the way through Genesis and we begin to read through Exodus and so on. And it isn't until Exodus 17 that God actually says to someone, hey, write the Bible. And he doesn't use those words, of course, but. This is what happens. The children of Israel are in the wilderness, and they're making their way from Egypt through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, eventually to the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. And on their way, a tribe called the Amalekites, which were actually um, ancient cousins of um, the Hebrews, the Amalekites come from behind Israel, 
their caravan, and they start slaughtering the elderly and the weak. So what happens is Moses sends out Joshua. They don't even have an army. Like, they just have to, like, make it up. Like, okay, like, you, 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 Joshua, lead them and go out and fight the Amalekites who are slaughtering our people. And then there's this weird thing. Joshua and his, you know, men, uh, warriors go out, and Moses is standing on top of this mountain, and he has to lift up his hands. And as he does, Joshua and the army prevail over the Amalekites. But as he gets tired, his hands begin to fall, and... And then all of a sudden the Amalekites are prevailing. And so Moses' brother and this other guy named Hur, which is confusing, uh, lift up Moses' hands. And as his hands stay lifted up, they win the battle. That finishes. And then the Lord says this. Write this. It's the first time the Bible says to write anything. Write this as a memorial in a book And recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So what's this story about? There's a story about an enemy that comes and attacks the people of God and picks off the vulnerable and the weak. And God says, I want you to record this story about my rescue, about my salvation, how I delivered you and helped you overcome this enemy who was there to pick off the vulnerable and the weak. So the first thing that God commands people to write in the Bible is a story of salvation, a story of deliverance. And you know what? And the Bible just keeps telling these stories again and again and again and again. The Bible is a book about God and about his salvation, his acts of deliverance, his acts of rescue and redemption about his determination to destroy all that would come against his people and his good purposes for the human race. It's a story about God's continual acts of salvation, his covenant relationship with human beings. And just think about that. Like, it's so relational in that way of what God does for us through the Bible. He tells us a story. It's a journey with God and not just, as I said, doctrinal thesis or facts about God. And story is so compelling to us as humans all throughout history. We are storytelling creatures and so much of our knowledge and education as human beings has come from receiving and telling stories. And the Bible is that. It's the story of God given to us that we may know this God and that we may know through the story his love, his grace, his salvation, his truth, his character. So I think that's the first thing the Bible is for. Secondly, the Bible is given to us to know and understand the true history of humanity from God's point of view. So, as most of us know, there are many views about the world, right? About humans, about why we're here, what does it mean to be human? What is our purpose? What's wrong with the world and how to fix it? And all throughout history, I mean, people have philosophized about this, right? So you think about, like, Platonism, the ancient Greek philosophy, which is actually kind of coming back these days, but... They thought the purpose of life was, right, the physical world is a shadowy and flawed. But the real world is a non-material realm of forms and ideals. And the purpose of life is to know and live in accord with the perfect realm of ideals. The problem, then, is the soul is good, but the body is bad. And even within the soul, the emotions and desires are tied greatly to desires for food and comfort and sex. And these war against the reason... And so if we're properly educated, we can fix these forms. The problem is that the body and its passions too often win over reason. So we've got to get rid of these desires, right? And just be spiritual people, soulish people. So we have to educate people so that reason triumphs over their bodies and appetites. We must put the most educated citizens, the philosophers, in charge of society. So that's one view of the world, and that was very popular for many, many, many years. Then, of course, the Enlightenment comes along, 
We have scientific naturalism, modern philosophy, right? And we're thinking that history is linear uh, and it's linked by cause and effect. There's no reality beyond the physical. Everything is a product of biological evolution and by means of natural selection, right? Everything about us is there because it helped us survive, and that's the purpose of life, to survive. The problem is... Uh, the basically are due to competition that produces winners and losers, right? So as we see the world, it's like, well, this is a bad thing. Like, we've got caste and these things. So the solution, empirical investigation and scientific implementation that can eliminate many human problems, and in the end, the process of evolution moves us ahead. Another view of the world, right? And then we can go to postmodernism, the deconstructionist view. We talked about this last week, Right? Objective knowledge of the real world is unachievable. Properties of objects are creative human projections. Um, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm not even going to go into this, right? But here's the Bible's view. God, the God of the Bible, made a good, beautiful world filled with human beings to share in this life of joy and peace by knowing, serving, and loving God and loving one another. The problem, the Bible says, is instead we chose to center our lives around ourselves and on the pursuit of things rather than on God and others. This led to the disintegration of creation and the loss of peace within ourselves, between people, and in nature itself. The solution God enters human history in the person of Jesus to deal with all the causes and results of our broken relationship with him. We say this often when we're talking about the gospel, but Jesus lives a life that we were created to live, and he dies for the debt we owe to God. He takes upon himself the sin and brokenness of the world so we can experience God's resurrection, his recreated world forever and ever in new bodies with a new heaven and new earth and the world will be restored to full joy, glory, and peace. And so as, as we read the Bible, we're getting God's view of the world. We're not just getting, you know, Plato, Aristotle's view of the world. We're not just getting modernism's view of the world. And, and a lot of our world is still controlled by in, enlightenment views. And now a lot of our world is sees the world as post-enlightenment views, right? And so when we come to Scripture, we get to get God's view of the world, God's view of history, God's view of human beings, God's view of what's wrong with the world, God's view of what is the solution. And through reading the Bible, we see this again in, in story, which is so beautiful, God's ongoing relationship to and with broken humans sinful humans just like us. J.I. Packer, in his book, God Has Spoken, he talks about how the Bible relates to humans on every level of existence. Listen, this, this is beautiful. He says, it shows God in relation to the most dramatic human crisis, birth, sickness, death, love, loss, wars, risks, disasters, failures, victories. It shows God in relation to the most elemental human emotions. Joy, grief, love, hate, hope, fear, pain, anger, shame, and awe. It shows God in relation to the most basic human relationship. To parents, spouses, children, friends, neighbors, civil authorities, enemies, fellow believers. And as we read through scripture, it allows God to tell us the story from his point of view. What God thinks about personal relationship and family and children. What God thinks about our emotion. You guys know that psalm where it says that God stores all of our tears in a bottle? The idea there is that God deeply cares about human emotion. And when we go back to early in Genesis, we find out, of course, God cares. He's the one that made human emotion. There's another passage in the Psalms that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, or the death of his people. I think living in this world, 
we can grow hardened to tragedy, right? It's so hard to face the death of a loved one, the death of a child. So hard to face a miscarriage. And, And it's easy for us to turn away from those things. And I think sometimes, because these things happen so often in the world, it's easy to think that God doesn't care. That's just like, yeah, that's just life. Or like, well, you're the one that ate the fruit, so deal with it, right? And yet we find that God, far from that, God is the one that looks at the death of his saints, and it's precious. It's, it's, it's close to his heart. Of course, we see this again with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus, when he sees all the mourners mourning, when he sees Mary and Martha crying, he doesn't say, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm almighty God. He doesn't make any of those statements which he totally could have, which are totally true. But what does he do? It's the shortest verse in all the Bible. It says Jesus wept. As we read scripture, it allows God to tell us the story of the world, the story of humanity from his point of view. God in relation to every human experience. And that's what it's for. It's how we get to know God. He reveals not just who he is, but what he has done, his character through these stories. And then lastly, the scripture is given to us to be formed and transformed by it. And I I said this last week, and we say it often here at Refuge. The purpose of scripture is to find our story being taken up into God's story, not the other way around. The reason for the Bible is to know God, as I said, to know and understand history and humanity from God's point of view, but not as a spectator, not as disconnected information. The Bible is for being shaped and formed in the way of Jesus and being caught up in the story requires participation Active listening, response, dialoguing with God, the one who is speaking. Again, Eugene Peterson, I think for the last time in this sermon, he says this, We are given this book so that we can imaginatively and believingly enter the world of the text and follow Jesus. We're invited into this story. We're invited to believe God. We're invited to walk the roads of Judea with him. To listen in on this, I mean, the story, in the, upper, the, um, the story of the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. You are my disciples. And, and if anyone hears my word, and the way that he speaks so intimately with them, we're invited into that. We're invited to believe just as they are. We're told that we will be given the comforter just as they were. We're invited into the story. N.T. Wright in his book, After You Believe, he says this, to be formed by the story of Scripture is to be formed as a Christian. To take the thousand and ten thousand decisions to open the Bible today and remortive the story even if we don't see the whole picture yet, is to take the next small step toward being the sort of person who by second nature will think, pray, act, and even feel in accordance with God's character and will. And before you know it, you find your story caught up in the story of God. God's inviting us. It's an apprenticeship. That's what scripture is for the Christian. An invitation to follow Jesus. You know, as we read through Scripture, we encounter the lives of men and women who did great things. Right? I mean, think about Abraham. Maybe already you're like, well, I don't know about that. I just read about Abraham. But Abraham, like right out the gate. Abraham, you know, God spoke to Abraham, leave your father's house and your people and go to a place that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. So Abraham lives in like a major, major metropolis, Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Abraham is probably very rich, very well off. Most Bible commentators and historians think so. Um, And God says, I'm going to make you famous. I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to take you. 
I'm going to make you great. Turns out God's going to take him to the desert to make him great and make him famous, which I don't know how that works, right? But just Abraham's faith in doing this. He just leaves behind everything he knows and he casts out into the unknown. He does not know Yahweh at this point. And so there's this moment with Abraham where you're like, wow, great, magnificent faith. If we could have faith like Abraham. And then there are terrible things. The way that Abraham and Sarah treat Hagar is despicable. The way that Abraham fails to trust God after he has been so faithful. And so he hands Sarah over to the king of Egypt because he's fearful for his life. God's already said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to bless you. But Abraham's fearful for his life in this situation, and so he hands over Sarah. And then he does it again with Abimelech, right? And then they don't trust God, and so they have to make a baby for themselves through Hagar, right? Just There's many great things that these men and women did, and then there's many terrible things that they did. They had great victories. They had great failures. They had times of acting in great faith toward God, in times where they responded in fear and unbelief. And I think what happens to us is we stop. We think, wait a minute. This person's not a hero. They're just like me. That's the point. They're just like you. They're just like me. They're human. Remember that passage in the book of James where James is telling us that we need to pray and how important prayer is. And as his example of the power of prayer, he just plucks from the narrative of Scripture, Elijah. Elijah prayed for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. And Elijah prayed again, you know, just one moment of prayer, and it rained, and like an incredible rain. And, and this is what James says about Elijah. He says, Elijah was just like you. He was just like me. We have this way of where we look at the biblical characters, even if we're reading the text ourselves, and we gloss over their humanity. We just pass it over. We don't mark it. We don't note it. We need to note these things. They are broken. They are flawed. They are just like us. They are human, subject to failure, lack of faith, fear, gross sin and brokenness but underneath all of that what we see in the narrative of scripture is the unfailing character and promises of God to rescue and redeem to forgive and heal and as we read this story we like those in the pages of scripture are being invited into a covenant relationship with this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to experience his fatherly love, to experience his forgiveness, his grace, his discipline, his teaching, his character, his love of the world, his mission, to know him and to follow him. Let me just give one more example of this, maybe one more. I often reference Exodus 34. It's the Bible's favorite verse about the character of God. Um, Actually, I'll just read it, because why not, right? It's great. Exodus 34. God's self-revealed character. When God does this, it's not the incommunicable attributes, that he is omniscient, all-knowing, that he is ever-present, that he is all-powerful. But when God reveals himself, when God speaks about himself, this is what he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty or those who do not repent, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children to the third and fourth generation. So we take that. And even if you were just to read that in context, it's Moses and it's God. And, and Moses has this moment where he just feels emboldened to ask God for a revelation of his character. So is that what this story is about? It's just about intimacy between Moses and God. This unveiling of God because Moses is in God's presence. And so I think if we, if we only saw it in that way, the idea is, man, got to be holy like Moses. And if you're holy, you'll see the true character of God. 
Let's back the, the, you know, the camera out a little bit further. What has just happened is that the nation of Israel has made a golden calf and has entered into all sort of like this sexual orgy while Moses is receiving the law of God on the mountain. And Aaron, a leader of Israel, is the one who has led the way in doing all of this. Israel, this is your God that has led you out of captivity in Egypt. I don't even know how many commandments they've already broken, right? And it is in this context that God reveals his character. So what is that to say? God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love towards golden calf worshipers, to rebels, to people who get it wrong. Read the story. Be invited in. I I guarantee you will be astounded by the grace and mercy of God. And I think that that is what the point is, to astound us and then to invite us in to know this God, to be a recipient of his love and his mercy and his grace all through Jesus and through his work. So I guess the question is, just for practical purposes, how do we enter the story? Right? Like, you don't just do that. Okay, enter the story. What was that? Oh, it's Mary Poppins. That's what it is. Remember that part where they jump into the book? If only. Um, so how do we enter the story of God? Well, I think the first thing we, we need to do, and this isn't just me saying this, this comes from Psalm 1. The first thing we are called to do, we're called to meditate on the word. To think it over. To contemplate the story. What it means. And, and what it means to our lives in light of it. What are we being invited to believe? What is this text teaching me about God and and, and how I can trust him more? Something new about his character, his person. How are we being invited to believe? How are we being invited to repent? What is there to hope and believe in? How are we being called to humble ourselves and rely on God more. There, there are so many ways to engage with the text, to meditate upon it. And this is what Psalm 1 calls us to do. Blessed is the one whose delight is in God's word. And, and in it, he, he, they meditate day and night. This person will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They will live a, true, they will live a truly blessed and flourishing life. If they let if they allow themselves to sit with the word, to sit with God's truth. So that's the first way I think we begin to enter the story. We meditate upon it, right? It's not just a shot in the arm. It's not just something I can just take at face value and run with and and interpret as I want. I'm, I'm called to sit with it. The second thing we're called to do, and this comes from the Psalms as well, we're invited into a conversation with God. When we think about prayer, what are we doing in prayer? In prayer, we are answering back the God who has already spoken through his word. And in doing that, in praying, we enter into a dialogue with God. A dialogue with the living God. Reading the Psalms and the prophets, we see that God's people rarely had an agreeing posture with God. Oh, God, beautiful. Perfect. Exactly what I was thinking. Thank you. God, where are you? How can you let this happen? You said that you would do... I mean, they sound like children with parents. That's what this sounds like. This sounds like husband and wife. You know, like, this is not just like, you know, like this... um, holy posture that we often think of this pious, like, oh, yes, yes, God, anything you want, anything you say, we will do. That's not what this is. They complain, argue, and accuse. They repent. 
They turn about face and they praise. They thank God and they sing. The, the idea here is uh, the conversation with God is like what we just read about with Jacob. Remember what happened with Jacob? He wrestled with God. And as he wrestled with God, he came out, yeah, limping with some wounds, but he came out of it with a blessing. You are the one who has wrestled with God and overcome. That's what the angel says to him. And this is what we hope to have as we wrestle with God, with the text, to come out with a greater understanding, a greater knowledge, a greater connection to God. I mean, you know this, like in personal relationships and a friendship, when you wrestle through something and you enter into that, like, okay, we got over that hump. We, we figure that out together. It brings you closer. It brings us camaraderie. And I think that that's what happens as well with scriptures. We meditate and we enter into conversation and dialogue. We wrestle with God. We enter into a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge, and a deeper relationship with God. So to enter the story, we must meditate we must conversate or dialogue. And then lastly, and I said this last week, we must obey. And this isn't, you know, I'm not making this up. This is what Christians have done for centuries. Meditate, dialogue, and obey. But what this is, is participatory reading. It is very, very, very important to ask, what does the text mean? That's the first question we do need to ask. But equally as important is the question, what am I to obey? An active response to the living God. That is what the scriptures demand of us. And if we do not do this, we are merely spectators, observers. We are not entering the story. Early Jewish rabbis taught the primary body part God gave us for taking in his word is not the ears, but the feet. They would say, follow the rabbi. And in this instance, follow Jesus. That's what the scripture is calling us to do to enter the story, to follow Jesus. And I know for the church, there are so many. Actually, I was just at seminary this last weekend. And we're talking about a huge problem in the church today is spectatorship. We have so many Christians who are making up what it means to be a Christian. And I give sermons about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and you guys say to me, I don't know, that sounds a little harsh. Well, I don't know, I didn't make it up. I'm just reading the book. You know, well, I don't know, I think it's more nuanced than that. Maybe. But if, you, if that's your objection to every description of what it means to follow Jesus, you're making up what it means to follow Jesus. Because it is, this is the only authoritative we, word we have about what it means to know God, to understand God's truth and to follow God through Jesus Christ. This is the only authoritative word we have. So if we're not using the Bible, we're not following God, at least not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. We're not following Jesus, at, like, at least not the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of the Bible. And so we need to be aware of this impersonal relationship to the scripture. And the way that we can do that is through meditation, conversation, and obedience. So what is the Bible for? So that we might know God. So that God might reveal himself, his character to us, character to us through the story. That we might understand ourselves History, all the relationships of what it means to be human and what it means to live life on this planet from God's point of view. And finally, that we might enter God's story. We might be caught up into it. We might receive and be part of the story of redemption. And we do that through meditation, through conversation, and through obedience. I just want to conclude by reading again 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17 
Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ to enter the story. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray. Lord, maybe as we're entering in for the first time a relationship with the scriptures. A new journey of reading this story. Lord, I pray that we would be bold enough to to ask ourselves and search our hearts. Do we really know what the Bible is for? Or are we guilty of making the Bible into what we want it to be, to support our political ideology, to support our agenda, our way of life, to simply use the Bible for our benefit and to try to force you into our story rather than to join you in your story. And I pray, Lord, even now, Lord, that you would work, convict us by your Holy Spirit if we have been doing this, Lord, if we're guilty of this. Lord, I think all of us are to some degree. Help us to turn from that, Lord, and to have a new vigor to engage with the scriptures. Lord, to sit under your word rather than over it in authority. I pray, Lord, that we would be like the man or woman described in Psalm 1 who delights in the scripture, who meditates and dialogues and obeys day and night that we might experience the blessed life, the flourishing life, the life that Jesus came to bring us because we know you, the one true God, and we know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We've come to believe and to trust that you are the Savior of the world, that you are the King of all kings. So Lord, transform us, we pray. Work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.